Get behind me, Satan. That is a phrase everyone knows. You don't even have to know this Bible story to be familiar with that phrase. You would probably hear it out in the world in whatever you might be doing. If you set before someone else a temptation, they might think, get behind me, Satan, without any real reference to this biblical story. These words come as a surprise to us in Matthew's Gospel because in the part of the scripture right before what we read today, Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who has come into the world. Jesus tells Peter, don't tell anyone that. In fact, he says it to all of his disciples. And then he proceeds to tell them what is to transpire, that he will suffer and he will die and on the third day be raised. Now, Peter knows the Jewish scriptures and knows that this is not how it's to go for the Messiah. And so he takes Jesus aside and in his mind puts together the fact that he has just identified who Christ is. Christ has affirmed that Peter has recognized him. And now Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen to me. And Peter says, that can't happen to you. That's not what's supposed to happen to the Messiah. And Jesus says to him, get behind me. You are a stumbling block. Jesus knows how it goes when people feel threatened. Usually when people feel threatened, they respond strongly and often with violence. And Jesus knows this is what's going to happen to him. That as people continue to feel threatened by his teachings, their vulnerability will become more and more evident to them and that they are going to respond. And they're going to respond with violence. And Jesus is going to let it happen. He's going to suffer at their hands and be killed. But he says, on the third day, I will be raised again. I don't think Peter even knew what that meant. I don't think Peter had any sense of what Jesus was even talking about. What kind of transformation could take place after such a brutal death? How is it that new life could come? This gospel story touched a point in my own life. There's only one time that I felt so inclined to say, get behind me, Satan. And I want to tell you about that now. The story is about learning to trust God with my life. You might know that I take Sabbath rest on Friday. That's what I call it. It started off just simply as my day off. Clergy are taught from the beginning to declare at least one day off a week. And it can't be Saturday or Sunday because those will never be days off. Routinely, there's six to eight hour days, no matter how you slice it. And so, clergy often take Monday or Friday off, and I decided I would take Friday. And so at the very beginning, in order to help me with this, I kept whatever young person I had home with me. I've had children throughout this whole process, and so when I first became a priest, our youngest was two. And I kept her home from her childcare that she had throughout the week. I thought for sure that would help me take the day off. 
Nobody wants to go run into the office with a two-year-old. Perhaps some of you have tried that. It's never a quick stop, and it's not ever pleasant for anybody as you try to work and they need your attention. And so I thought, you know, I'll keep somebody home and that will help me take this day off. And so I did. But oh, by around 10 a.m., my anxiety started to grow. And I would remember the phone call that I didn't return and I meant to return it on Thursday. Oh, I would remember the pastoral matter that I was gonna check in on and it's already been a solid week. Oh my gosh, I should have called that person. Maybe I could call him now. But no, I had committed to taking the day off. And you can't make a pastoral phone call when Barney is on the television in the other room. You can't risk listening to someone's deep experience and be interrupted by a request for a snack or juice. And so I muddled through my anxiety that came at 10 a.m. And I happened to get close to the afternoon before that anxiety presented itself again. But by that time, I had let go of those earlier concerns. And now I was remembering the sermon that wasn't finished and the fact that Saturday already had things scheduled on it. And I would begin to think of the emails that I hadn't even received yet because I didn't turn my email on at all on Friday. And oh my goodness, what's in that inbox? Who's asking something of me? What did I promise that I forgot to deliver? And then at four o'clock, that's when my anxiety would grow again. And I would busy myself with a chore or something just to distract myself. And remember, this is my day off and I'm going to practice having my day off. I could usually make it then to dinner and dinner would take care of itself into the evening, but sometime around 9 p.m. my anxiety grew again. And I realized that the inbox was probably really full. What was I going to find there tomorrow morning when I woke up? What would I do? What might it be? And I would tell myself, just go to bed. Whoever sent you an email at 9 a.m. is not going to check it now. And you told yourself that you would take this day off. Just go to bed. It'll be there in the morning. Indeed, it all was there on Saturday morning. And as soon as I woke up, I rushed to the computer and I turned it on to see what I might find. Breathing deeply, hoping that there wasn't some worst case scenario. And lo and behold, there wasn't. There had indeed been email exchanges of people on various things, but it was all okay. And now I was free to go and make that pastoral call. And when I did, people said, oh, how nice that you called. And I thought, it's been a week. Or I could sit and think about my sermon. And I had a renewed energy for entering into the scriptures. Friday began to be an exercise of trusting God with my life. Every Friday I would come to this day off, trusting God with my life. The anxiety that presented itself at 10 a.m. started to not ever be there. It only would pop up around the afternoon sometime. And I had learned through Friday after Friday to busy myself or to breathe deeply or to pray my concern. And then it would go into the evening and pop up again. But slowly, Friday after Friday after Friday, there was no anxiety at 4 o'clock. And then slowly, Friday after Friday after Friday, there was no anxiety at 9 p.m. I was learning to trust God with my life. And each Friday as I practiced it, it became easier and better. Till I woke on Saturday morning and I got to the point where I thought, you know what, I'm going to have a cup of coffee first. I'll make pancakes. 
There's time for this. God has got my life. This has become such a peace for me that I fight for it. It reminds me of who I am and whose I am to trust God with my life. And I practice it every week. I have to practice it every week so that I remember. So there was one Sunday several years back when I mentioned that I take my Sabbath rest on Friday. And at the conclusion of the service, I was in the back and a woman came through and she made some reference to the fact that I took Fridays off. And I said, yeah, you know, I figure God can run the church without me for 24 hours. And she, in her biggest complimentary voice, said, well, I don't know about that. And I barreled through her with my eyes and I said, I do. We learn to trust God with our lives. It is hard work. And it takes incremental steps to make it happen. I figure 52 Fridays generally are in a year. I've been practicing this for 11 years. That's about 572 days, approximately, of practice. Multiply that times 24 hours. I don't know what figure you get, but it's a lot of hours. A lot of hours of practicing trusting God with my life. And the more I do it, the better I get at it. The more joy I feel by the next invitation to do that. Even into the bigger things, and I think, oh my gosh, this? Trust you with this? But I remember all of those 52 Fridays for all of these 11 years, all of those 24 hours in each of those Fridays. When I was in discernment for a new position, one of my colleagues was perplexed as to why it was taking so long. And so he offered up a recommendation to me. He said, you know, you probably shouldn't tell him about your Fridays. And I had to just shut my eyes and breathe deeply. I thought, this guy doesn't get it. If I don't do my Fridays, the whole thing falls apart. Fridays are my opportunity to trust God with my life. And I have to practice that. That's what Jesus is reminding Peter and us of in the Gospel lesson today. To trust God with our lives. And Peter has an idea of how this is to go. And that's what Jesus is reacting to. You must trust God with your life. Whoever wants to be a follower of me must learn to trust God with their life. They must lay down their cross and take up mine, and mine is that I trust God with my life. God will transform it into something, but I must trust God with it. That's relevant to us in the 21st century as much as it is to these first followers of Jesus. And we wonder how it is that we do it. Paul gives us some direction in the passage from Romans this morning. Like our gospel lesson, Romans builds upon the lesson from last week. And we're reading the second portion of this 12th chapter of Paul to the church in Rome where he's telling them what it means to be a community of believers. And he's telling them what it looks like. And so we hear him say to them, let love be genuine. He goes on to list a whole list of things, of ways that love is genuine. 
This is what it means to live as believers in community with one another, and it lays the foundation for God to transform the world. And we get transformed in the process. In trusting God with our lives, God does something with them. I think it drives it home at the bottom of this, this passage this morning when Paul reminds us that vengeance is not ours. Now think about trusting God with that. If there's anything that can incite our emotions, it's a wrongdoing against us. And we're ready to take up the sword to deal with it. But God says, trust me with your life. I'll take care of that. So Paul invites us into this practice. Paul himself was one who was drugged into this practice of trusting God with his life. One who persecuted those that followed Jesus at the very beginning, oversaw their killings, and somehow his life was changed. He trusted God with his life after that in a way different than he ever had done before, and he was transformed. I put on the back of your leaflet, if you want to look on the very back, another translation of this same passage that I pulled from one of the commentaries I was reading prior to this in preparation for this sermon. Christopher Hudson reminds us that there is no verb form in the Greek of this passage. So the verb that has chosen to be let love be could also be an indicative. And he shows us there below. Genuine love is. Genuine love is abhorring the evil and clinging to the good. Genuine love is being affectionate to one another in brotherly love, outdoing one another in honor. Genuine love is not lagging in diligence. It is being a fire in the spirit. Genuine love is serving the Lord. It's rejoicing in hope. Genuine love is persevering in affliction. It's being devoted to prayer. Genuine love is contributing to the needs of the saints. It is pursuing hospitality. In these words of Paul, which do remind us of his letter to the church in Corinth, we are given the means and the end of what it looks like to be followers of Christ. What it is to practice this genuine love and what happens when we do practice this genuine love. And we are reminded that we cannot do this on our own. At the beginning of this 12th chapter to the church in Rome, which we read last week, Paul reminds us of our companionship with Christ in this. <clears throat> and I want to read to you those first two verses from the beginning of this 12th chapter. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Perfect. That's not our construct. It is what God is calling out in us, and God will define what that perfect is. We are called to be transformed 
by trusting God with our lives. And our bodies will remind us of where that trust can take place. When our anxieties increase, when we are stressed or worried, therein lies our prayer. We can turn right around and say, this I want to trust to you. We lift it up to God so that God can transform it and can bring about a new life for each of us. We are inviting Shannon and Peter into this promise. This is what we celebrate in the death and resurrection of Christ. When we come to the baptismal font and pour the water over each of their heads, we say, new life is yours because God will transform your life as you trust God with it. We will encourage you in those practices because we encourage one another. We come together to practice genuine love because that is the fertile ground in which God works. We tend to that soil so that God can bring about new life in each of us. This is the promise each of us is held into. And God promises to hold us in that all the days of our life as we trust in him. Amen. Amen.